This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Canadian youth get a bad grade for their physical activity. Not many federal employees are learning about Indigenous peoples. Darren Flutie joins us to talk about Danny McManus's addition to the Ticats Wall of Honor. Can you still eat healthy with rising food prices? There's a head-scratching new rule at Pearson Airport. And Tesla's new robot gets panned by tech insiders. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Participation's 2022 Child and Youth Report Card gives Canadian kids and youth a grade of D for their overall physical activity. Dr. Lee Vanderloo is with Participation and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Vanderloo, good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. So how do we get to a D this year? Yeah, so between our last report card, which would have been released in 2020, we did see quite a significant drop in uh, kids and teens overall physical activity. So only about 28% are currently meeting national physical activity guidelines, which are 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity uh, per day. And so, you know, while the numbers are obviously um, less than ideal, I think how we got there is probably not surprising, especially when we look at the last two years, uh, the removal of sports and organized activities, a lot of closures of outdoor play spaces, um, and just, you know, a little bit more of an overindulgence and overutilization out of necessity, of course, um, of screens, you know, whether it was for online schooling, um, how we were staying connected to loved ones, and then, of course, how we were trying to pass the free time. So not surprising, but definitely something to be, you know, concerned about when we're thinking about how best to navigate and make an active recovery from the pandemic on how best can we support the moving behaviors of children and youth. Pandemic or not, the first report, uh, I believe it was in 2005, had an overall grade of D. The last report in 2020, just at the start of the pandemic, uh, youth and kids got a D plus. The needle really hasn't moved all that much. No, and I would agree with that in that um, we're not seeing those major shifts that we want to see. Now, when it comes to something like physical activity, especially at the national level, we wouldn't necessarily expect to see major shifts in a short period of time. But when we do look at the last 15 years, there really hasn't been that much movement. And I think that goes to show um, just how much physical activity has been socially engineered out of our day-to-day -day lives um, and that it is a complex issue. It is more than just, um, oh, you just got to move a little bit more or, you know, so-and-so might be a little bit lazy or they don't do that. I think it really shows that there's a lot more at play and that it's going to take a lot more than just um, children and youth wanting to get active, um, but really looking at the environments that they're in. Are they supportive? Are they conducive to movement? Are kids having fun and are they finding joy in moving their bodies? And if not, what can we do to try to shift those attitudes? We're talking about the latest participation reports here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML gives youth and kids in Canada a D for their overall physical activity. And we're joined by Dr. Lee Vanderloo, a spokesperson with participation. Uh, kids get an F for sedentary behaviors, a C- minus for active transportation, a D- minus for active play. 
I would suggest the parents have a role to play here as well, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, there's all, um, you know, institutions and sectors and the family unit is definitely one of them. But I think, you know, when we look at the current climate of what we're dealing with, and even before is figuring out what do parents need to help support? There's so many different, um, you know, the Parents are constantly feeling bombarded and torn in a number of different directions in terms of all the different things we need to be considering to really ensure that we're putting our children um, on, you know, the healthiest path forward. Um, and so when it comes to children and youth, one great way to take that family approach is to really make sure that physical activity is something that's valued by the family, um, that it's something, you know, that they choose when they're thinking about finding ways to get active together or spending time together, even bonding, that it in that it entails a bit more movement, having um, screen use guidelines in the house. So just in terms of, you know, setting some screen free zones in the house, for example. So say no screens at the dinner table or in the bedrooms, being aware of your own habits. So kids, you know, are like sponges. They really do pick up on their parents' uh, behaviors, um, whether it's positive ones when we're thinking of engaging in physical activity or maybe some less desirable ones in terms of excessive screen use. So just trying to pay attention to our own behaviors um, and, you know, co-participation with children. So getting active with them, showing that it's something fun, encouraging them, providing those prompts, particularly for um, girls. Um, we definitely see a decrease in physical activity or more disparities uh, when we look at boys versus girls. And we also have to take a step further back and look at for families that, you know, are, are part of equity deserving or equity denied groups that were even harder hit by the pandemic is realizing that extra supports are needed to help families feel that they have the necessary tools and supports in place to help ensure that their kids are getting active on a regular basis. Great stuff. Dr. Vanderloo, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us to talk about uh, Participation's latest report card. Thank you so much for having me. Take That's care. Dr. Lee Vanderloo, spokesperson with Participaction, an overall grade of D for kids and youth in this country. You can get more information online at participaction.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. From sunny skies here in Hamilton to what appears to be very cloudy skies when it comes to the federal government and the fact that very few federal employees have taken part in optional Indigenous cultural awareness and sensitivity training sessions. There are 15 different training sessions on Indigenous issues known as the Indigenous Training Series that have been offered by the federal government. But the Canada School of Public Services participation in these sessions is low. In fact, fewer than a fifth of public servants have attended any one session. Don Lavelle Harvard is the director of First Peoples House of Learning at Trent University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Don, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thank you. For a government that talks about reconciliation, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of buy-in here. That's the sad part, is that many of these kind of activities, these kind of initiatives, we're always preaching 
to the choir, to the converted. It's always the ones who already have the interest in reconciliation that are voluntarily coming out to these kinds of trainings. And the challenge is, if the government were to make it mandatory, that only increases resentment and then it creates barriers for those who would, then they would be coming in with a, a very closed mind. So we're kind of you know, caught between a rock and a hard place with these kind of trainings if people aren't you know, picking up that challenge to really want to enter into reconciliation initiatives willingly. One of the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, one of the few recommendations that have actually been adopted, is that government should provide uh, public servants with um, these training sessions. Yet, if if they're not taking them, uh, yeah, yeah, the recommendation has been fulfilled, but it's not really being uh, it's not really being fulfilled because we're not learning about it. Well, exactly, and that's it. It's one of those things where. Yes, you sort of have a technical, you know, they have offered it, but if there is no take up, then it's not really going to create the kind of systemic change that we need. And I think that, you know, many of these employees, if they were to participate, we do an amazing training here at Trent University with the First People's House. We've been working with, you know, the Durham region, with Clarington, and every one of those employees that have gone through have gone back to their colleagues and said, this was really powerful. This was really impactful. And we have actually had greater demands than we can handle sometimes. And so, you know, maybe there needs to be a, an evaluation of the approach in the particular training that's being offered to ensure that it is something that is, is engaging in a way that really is able to open people's minds because you know one of the things we talk about is this is not about shame and blame this is about understanding the truth so that we can all move towards reconciliation in a good way and understanding why it's important one of the surprising aspects to this story is that i i and i i'm I'm guessing many other canadians thought that these would have been mandatory sessions you know and this is the challenge i mean at Trent University, we implemented a mandatory Indigenous Studies content. Like Everyone to graduate has to have a half credit in Indigenous Studies course. And the first year we did it, you know, there was a lot of resistance, a lot of pushback, and it actually closed a lot of people's minds. So there's a really delicate balance. But I do think they need to find a better way, maybe some sort of motivation, that there's some sort of recognition or some sort of benefit to doing this, you know, more of a, a carrot than a stick, because making things mandatory often has the opposite of the the effect you want. Uh, yeah, the, the, the carrot thing is, is delicate, too, because, you know, the, the narrative is going to be that you know, they're only doing this because they're getting whatever they're getting. Well, exactly. And, and this is the challenge. So, you know, it, this also is on people. It's not necessarily on the government. You know, here's an exact opportunity of what the TRC was talking about, that this, you know, we can't wait for government and just thinking that this is something the government is going to change is not going to do it because reconciliation is about rebuilding that relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people at the grassroots level, in municipalities, in the city of Hamilton, you know, they're right next to Six Nations. You're, we have that opportunity as individual, regular, everyday citizens to be engaging in reconciliation and right here is an exact example that we all need to do better. We all need to pick up that activity. We all need to engage in that. And it's uncomfortable. I completely understand that. And I think that's perhaps why a lot of people are not engaging is, you know, the the tragedy, the oppression, the colonization of this country is 
is not an uncomfortable history, is not a comfortable history. It is very uncomfortable. It's very hard to look at the history of this country. And a lot of people are choosing to shield themselves from that knowledge. Unfortunately, we, we've made some strides with reconciliation. Heck, the Pope was here in the summer, made an apology twice about the church's role in residential school system. Um, you know, we have a, a national a day for truth and reconciliation. So we're, we're taking some steps forward. We still have a long, long way to go. Don, really appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. Don Lavelle Harvard is the director of First People's House of Learning at Trent University, chiming in on very few federal civil servants uh, taking in these Indigenous training sessions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is going to be a fantastic night on Friday with the Ticats hosting the Saskatchewan Roughriders. The night before at Carmen's Banquet Center, a Ticats Wall of Honor's latest edition will be uh, honored. That's legendary quarterback Danny McManus. The reception starts at 5.30, dinner at 6.30. The ceremony begins at 7.30. You can get your tickets at wallofhonor.square.site. And it is going to be a fantastic evening. And joining us now to talk about it is one of Danny McManus's former Tiger Cats and BC Lions teammates, his name is Darren Flutie. You know him, you love him, and he joins us now. Darren, good morning. How are you? Thanks. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Um, when I say the name Danny McManus, what comes to mind? Uh, I guess uh, calmness under pressure would come to mind at first. I, I would think of him as a very good friend. I think we played uh, since 93 to 2002 together, so we played 10 years together. And we roomed together all those years, you know, preseason and everything. So just a very good guy, very calm under pressure, strong arm, quick release. What was I'm he going to talk football? What was he like as a roommate? Oh, he was he was great. He has that dry sense of humor. He's he's very funny. I was talking, I think, with Mike Morielli earlier, maybe last week, and we were talking about in the locker room. I always have my locker. Danny and Coach Lancaster would put up this poem about the man in the mirror. It's all about self-responsibility. And I, we had seen it for like six years. So I finally got to the point where I'm like, oh, my God, this poem again? <laughs> and Danny would set me up every time, like when Coach Lancaster would be, is right behind me. He'd be like, Flute, wh- what do you think of this uh, poem that got put up? And I'm like, that, that thing is such a joke. And he'd get me in trouble with Coach Lancaster like day after day. And that's the hardest I would ever see Danny laugh. He would laugh so hard at that joke. 1999 was a special year for this team, for you, for DMAC as well. Uh, You end up scoring a couple of touchdowns in the Grey Cup victory over Calgary. What do you remember most about that game? Uh, I I felt like we had a a very good week leading up to it uh, as receivers, as a group. And as Danny, we knew exactly what we wanted to do against Calgary. Obviously, we had played him a lot that year. We had played him in the Grey Cup the year before, so we did have that little extra incentive. But uh, we felt very good about our passing game, about what we were going to do that day. And I remember getting a lot of balls thrown to me through about two and a half quarters, three quarters. And then Danny pumped on the brakes, throwing the ball to me because he didn't want to give up the MVP. That's what I remember. <laughs> you still have an axe to grind to this day. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Love him. I love him. Yeah. To death. 
Uh, we're talking with Darren Flutie, Canadian Football Hall of Famer, two-time Grey Cup champion, three-time CFL All-Star, as we, uh, I guess, pump the tires of Danny McManus. He's going to be honored this Thursday night at the Ticats Wall of Honor Dinner at Carmen's Banquet Center. You can get your tickets at wallofhonor.square.site. Darren, you you were also teammate of D-Max uh, with the BC Lions for many years, including 1994. Wow, what a special year that was, culminating in the first ever Canadian versus U.S. team in the Grey Cup. Right. So, 94, I think Danny came to British Columbia in 93, but he really didn't see serious time at quarterback until 94. Kent Austin was the starter, but he had a lot of injuries going on in 94. So Danny got a lot of prime time, playing time during that season. And that's when we really started to connect because I had built this chemistry with Kent, but Danny would always stay after and throw a little bit. So I was like, you know, this is, this season is not looking good. Like Kent's getting hurt a lot. So I'd stay a lot after and we just work on certain routes versus different looks like over and over in 94 and then we'd apply those to the game when we got in there so throughout the season Danny and I kind of had a good connections that year and then of course we hit the the big western final actually a lot of those playoff games Danny came into but specifically the western final against Calgary we ended that with the touchdown with the throw to get to the five and then the touchdown where he was just reading my mind that I was going to hook up and that was from all that practice we did together. And then that culminated in playing in Vancouver against Baltimore, which was an American team. So it was very, a lot of emotions going on in that game. Well, you and get, to win that was great. Unbelievable. Yeah, Luis Pasagli with the game-winning kick at the end of regulation. We've got about 30 seconds. When you get together with McManus and some of the other Ticats alumni Thursday night, I'm assuming it's just going to be like old times. Yeah, you know, that's the funny thing about guys that play together or guys that have old friends. You get together after seeing each other, for, not seeing each other for the longest time, and you can pick up right where you left off. And that's what I would expect this, this Thursday night and Friday is that we'll pick up right where we left off with all the same old jokes, telling the same old stories. And who knows? Maybe, maybe exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> maybe Lancaster's poem will come up as well. Darren, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, have some fun Thursday and Friday night as well. Thank you. My pleasure. That is Canadian Football Hall of Fame receiver Darren Flutie, two-time Grey Cup champ, of course, with the 99 Ticats and the 94 Lions, three-time CFL All-Star, and obviously a great friend of legendary quarterback Danny McManus, who's going to be added to the Ticats Wall of Honor. You can go to the Wall of Honor dinner at Carmen's Banquet Center. It all starts at 5.30, the ceremony itself at 7.30. Get your tickets now, wallofhonor.square.site. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900. CHML. Well, you've all been to the grocery store. You've seen the sticker shock, whether it's milk or eggs, produce, meats, everything in between. The prices have gone up. In fact, about 10% overall compared to this time last year. We can blame inflation. We can blame the war in Ukraine for, for spiking up uh, inflation. At the end of the day, though, Canadians from coast to coast to coast still looking for those low-cost but healthy recipes to get them through each and every day. Here to give us some tips and advice on how we can aim for that or achieve that is Kate Park, registered dietitian, diabetes educator with the Hamilton Family Health Team. Kate, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning. Thanks for having me on. When food prices rise, like we're seeing now, is it harder to create healthy meals that don't bend our budgets? It can definitely take a lot more thought to get those inexpensive recipes on the table, especially since a lot of us with families are accustomed to making certain dishes for our families. Um, and as you said, a lot of ingredients have just gone up naturally in price. Um, it's not impossible, but everybody is definitely feeling the pressure on their wallet right now. It's really easy to convert what would normally be a meal that includes some kind of red meat or poultry or maybe even some fish. And you're looking at those prices thinking, Thinking, mm, maybe we'll just do pasta tonight. It's cheap. It's uh, yeah, very versatile. Let's go that route. Might not be a great meal each and every day, though. No, not necessarily. Um, although there is a lot of really great research that's been coming out about the benefits of plant-rich eating, um, and in particular using plant-based protein. So what I mean by that is things like uh, beans and nuts and seeds and lentils. And I think a lot of people's instincts is to just cut out the meat, but we do need protein. We need it from somewhere. It's what helps us feel full. It's important for building our muscles. Um, and so people hopefully are going to be able to start experimenting with more of these plant-based proteins and it doesn't mean you have to go vegetarian or vegan even you can stretch meat for example you know if you're going to do um, spaghetti bolognese with a meat sauce you know add some lentils in so that it stretches the meat so that you actually get more out of it for your family and can save a bit because those uh, uh, proteins are often quite a bit cheaper I find. The, these rising prices are really forcing us to be a, I think a little more creative when it comes to what we're putting on the dinner table. Definitely. The other thing is uh, an important way that people can start saving money is by reducing their food waste. I think sometimes um, we can get a little bit careless with throwing things maybe in the bin that could be saved for other things. For example, you know, when you're chopping carrots or celery or onion, you know, the extra pieces might go into the scrap bin. I'm encouraging people to actually throw those into a freezer bag and make themselves what I call a stock bag, which you can then throw into a pot of water and you can make soup out of that. Just because they're ugly doesn't mean they can't go to use um, <laughs> for something else. <laughs> That's a great idea. What healthy food items are still reasonably priced at the grocery store? So a couple of things that are still fairly reasonably priced would include things like um, canned fish. And I think a lot of people assume because it's in a can, maybe it's not as helpful. Um, but it actually has just as good nutrition as say like frozen or fresh fish and it often will stay a lot longer. Um, there's also our frozen fruits and vegetables, which are going to get really important over the next coming months. We've had the advantage of having local fresh fruits and vegetables, which are often a little bit cheaper, but those prices are going to start to go up as things go out of season. And there's just as much nutrition in frozen uh, vegetables and fruits as there is in fresh. And uh, they can be more convenient in some ways because they're kind of pre-chopped and ready to go. So people can incorporate those to try and keep their budgets down as well. We're looking at rising food prices and how everyone listening can look for and achieve a low-cost but still healthy meal, whether it's at breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or somewhere in between. Kate Park is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Kate is a registered dietitian, diabetes educator at the Hamilton Family Health Team. Do you have a go-to great, affordable, and healthy dish? 
Mm, I think one of my favorite ones to do is to do a stuffed jacket potato. So, you know, when you roast a potato in the oven and then you cut it open and you kind of make a little boat out of it, the options are endless. But my favorite go-to is to add black beans, mozzarella cheese, and then put a poached egg on top of that. That's something you could use for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Um, and all of those ingredients can be reused for something else. That's the thing. We want to make sure that we are stocking our pantry with versatile ingredients, not just, you know, picking that recipe that has that one ingredient you're going to use once and then it's going to sit on the shelf for months on end. So I love that recipe because it's flexible. I can stuff other ingredients into the potatoes. Um, I think my favorite is to use sweet potatoes for that one though. That sounds absolutely delicious. I'm almost tempted to ask you to email that recipe to me, but I think I have a general idea at how, how it would go. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're also a diabetes educator. We should identify that too, because that is a growing problem, not only in our community, but really worldwide. How is uh, all the stuff we've just been talking about, about eating rest, uh, eating healthier, going to help in that regard as well? Uh, so the biggest concern, um, much like you said, with the rising prices is people are cutting back on certain things to try and save money. And unfortunately, some of those cost-effective ingredients that are, say, like carbohydrate-rich, which are still very nutritious, can be problematic for somebody with rising blood sugars because you need those other ingredients, the vegetables and the proteins, to help kind of control your blood sugars at meals. So finding cost-effective options like plant-based proteins like beans and then using frozen and vegetables to keep your costs down, but keep your blood sugars under control is really, really important. So can't skip those. You can absolutely have the pasta, just make sure you have everything else with it. Really informative information from Kate Park. Really appreciate your time as well. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's Kate Park, registered dietitian, diabetes educator with Hamilton Family Health Team. And some great tips and advice and uh, a handy recipe for you to try sometime soon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, I read this story in the Toronto Sun the other day and I thought, what in the world? Toronto's Pearson International Airport implementing new rules just happened yesterday that drastically changed the way the media is able to cover airport-related news events. Of course, this got my attention. I'm in the media, and I'm like, what the... The headline, Warmington, new rules for media at airports should not be allowed to fly in a free country. The man who wrote that is joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Joe Warmington is a columnist with the Toronto Sun. Joe, good morning. How are you? You gave uh, 24 hours notice uh, to me to come on the show and that uh, we had a permit and it was approved <laughs> and signed and... And now there's even a chaperone. Yes, thank you for doing that. Um, <laughs> what what are the new rules that are being installed? Tell our listeners. Well, basically what it is, is the, it, it's kind of like you see in North Korea or places like that in Cuba where you don't really have a free press. You can't just go down and cover something. You've got to apply and go through the government. So they've installed these kinds of rules where you've got to go in on this app and fill out an application form, almost like a passport office, you know. We're, we're sort of getting out of all this kind of police station at the hockey arena just to go in. You have to show a passport to go into the Tim Hortons. Well, they're, they're having it at the airport. They've just taken that stuff off where you can get on the plane without a mask and all that. And so it's a big problem for Pearson. You know, for Hamilton and for the Toronto media, Pearson's a big hub of news over the year. So you'll be out there six times a year at least for different stories, whether it's someone coming back with a medal from the Olympics or something more controversial like these issues we've dealt with uh, with the pandemic. And, you know, they've basically stopped it in its track. Now, they're they're backtracking a little bit, saying, no, 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 uh, you know, 
kind of nudge, nudge, move, like do the best you can. But um, with slippery slope, when you start having to get, have to have a license to cover basic news in a public sphere, you know, it, um, it's a big problem. Absolutely. This is certainly an iron-fisted approach. Was there something that led to this one incident, a series of incidents? I think, I think so. I mean, I think there's a number of things. I think the big thing is the fact that the airport was, you know, sort of judged as the worst in the world in terms of, you know, getting through there. And, and they were pretty embarrassed about that. So somebody somewhere, you know, in the hierarchy said, look, enough, let's control the message. Because that seems to be the way governments approach it now. If they don't like the message, then they want to cancel it, shut it down, get that person off of Facebook or Twitter. Instead of having some sort of a debate to say, well, you know, or, or maybe even listen to the criticism, it's more the censorship thing. And I know some people like it. They say, well, you know, this person shouldn't have a voice. But the minute you start taking voices that you don't agree with and only wanting to hear what you want to hear, then you run into this. So I don't, I doubt this is something that will stick. I don't think that, you know, over your station, I don't think you know, whether it's TV or radio, they're going to be following this because they don't decide something 24 hours ahead of time. I mean, if there's a baseball game, you know, it's the next day. You get accredited and you go to the game, but that's still private enterprise. The airport is basically, you know, in terms of the main terminal, at least, uh, basically the city square. And, um, you know, you can't have this, and I don't think it'll fly. Now, they, they may want to try to enforce it. I don't think the Peel police who, you know, take care of the security at the airport are going to be wanting to be arresting reporters, uh, you know, whether it's Sean O'Shea or Austin Delaney or Janice Golding, whatever, um, like they're not going to be able to do that uh, without people saying, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. This is a police state. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Joe Warmington, a columnist with the Toronto Sun. We're talking about uh, a new rule at Pearson International Airport that basically is uh, in, encouraging, urging uh, journalists, mandating journalists to sign up uh, 24 hours in advance to cover a story. Uh, and, you know, I thought of a reporter, I don't know, who's, who's going on a trip, let's just say. Something newsworthy happens at the airport, and they report on it. Is the airport going to fine that person? Are they going to ban the person? Are they going to cancel their trip? It, it, you know, it, I mean, this is the problem when you have rules like this, is they have the power to do that. And they get to decide whether they give you this permit or not. And then they give you a minder, someone to walk with you to cover the story, which is, you know, <laughs> now they're holding your hand, I mean. You know, and, and we kind of laugh at it, but if you think about what we've been through in the last three years and what we allowed the system to do to us, like, you know, this thing with the truckers, I was there in Ottawa. There's lots of different points of view on it, for sure. But at the end of the day, when you start mucking around with protesting, and that's why they're having these hearings now, and you start to, to do this stuff, you know, you, you really do have to look in the mirror and say, well, like, how far do we take this? I mean, some protests are okay, as long as they agree with us politically, and some aren't. And, you know, my point of view is let it all go, cover it, and if there's something that's really, really egregious, then deal with that one thing, but not this blanket approach, Rick, where, you know, we're going to decide who gets to come if we don't like you. Now, you know, the whole thing about the independent media, which is really, really popping up everywhere, you know, the different independent media outlets, I think that may be who they're targeting in a way because they don't follow the same kind of journalistic rules that, say, the mainstream does. And but it still it didn't say that in the documents, and so you know the, the sort of the email saying don't worry we'll, we'll let you in. Well, it's not really a matter of whether you let us in. It's a matter of what is the public you know sphere. What is 
something that we can cover. And, you know, you see this at crime scenes and different things. They put the yellow tape up. And, of course, you stay on the other side of the yellow tape. But if they say you can't come anywhere within 10 blocks of this, and, you know, you just have to stay in the office and we'll put out a press release and you report that, then you know you don't have a free press. And you've got to watch it because I'm telling you, they're pushing all the time. You know, it's not any kind of always a government. It may be just one person that sees it this way. But it's always politicians behind it. You don't see them. They're the ones that move the police in a particular way and they move the media in a particular way. You've got to watch it, I think. Uh, I don't know what your audience thinks, but that's how I feel. But I think the more information you put out there, let people that are smart, let them decide which way they, you know, they feel about it. I agree with you on that one. Joe, we're plumb out of time. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. All the best. Go Blue Jays. Joe Warmington, columnist with the Toronto Sun. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Did you get a chance to check out Optimus? Not Optimus Prime, not the not the Transformer. No, this is this is Tesla's new entry into the humanoid robot world, so to speak. Last Friday, Tesla unveiled this well, this robot it calls Optimus, and technology insiders, at least all the ones that I heard and saw from, are giving it a big thumbs down. Why? Chris Elias Smith is the director of the Center for. Theoretical Neuroscience at the University of Waterloo and the Canada Research Chair in Theoretical Neuroscience and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing great. Safe to say that Optimus fell flat? (laughs) Not quite literally, but almost. (laughs) Yes, it almost did. One criticism is the robot has human-like hands with five fingers. Uh, you know, one AI insider wasn't too uh, thrilled about that. Another one called it cringeworthy. What was your first impression of Optimus? <laughs> yeah, underwhelming really is the key word of the day, I think. When you see it walk Did you and move, get it a chance like to check out Optimus? So, you know, the impressive not part Prime, is how quickly not the, they did it, but what they is not impressive. This is Tesla's new given entry that, are you surprised into that Tesla rolled this thing the out? humanoid not robot really. world, I think some so people have Last suggested Friday, that it's Tesla really much more of a recruiting this, well, this effort than anything robot, else. Optimus, and uh, Technology insiders, at least like, I understand the ones where, that where the I heard and saw from, are giving it a big thumbs down. Why? When Chris Elismith is the director when, you know, of the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience at the University of Waterloo and the Canada Research Chair in Theoretical Aside Neuroscience. Aside from the recruiting effort, on Good Morning what do you think Chris, Tesla's morning, how are you? end goal morning, is here? Is this to create safe to a say that Optimus butler, fell or maybe flat? a robot that is used by businesses <laughs> or quite governments? Not quite literally, but almost. Yes, it almost did. One criticism is the robot has human-like hands with five fingers. AI insider wasn't too thrilled don't about that. Another one called it cringeworthy. What was your first impression so of Optimus? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and uh, steals jobs really from, uh, from living, breathing day, souls. Um, any guesstimate on how much move, this like perhaps might cost when it is officially released? So, you know, the so they are suggesting it will be $20,000 per robot. I would be extremely surprised if they could Given that, are you surprised that Tesla rolled this thing out? Not really. I think some people have suggested that it's really much more of a recruiting effort than anything else. 
I, I still think it's very strange. Be 20K, like, but I understand what, where the question is coming from because, you know, when are, Tesla you know, aside put from out the their tires, they were super special because they are were electric. Robots these days? When they put out their... Well, when, lots you know, of people have them in their houses. Space tech, you know, so I think super the little because Roombas it could land and be reusable, but there's literally nothing special about this robot. We don't see them in too many other practical scenarios. In fact, end goal is here. We can sort of think of self-driving cars as getting there, but maybe a robot that is used by businesses or governments. What do you think? Yeah, for the most part, you really do see them. Yeah, I think they have a pretty practical factories uh, on sort of I guess the other big place to is, of course things like space the people that are in their warehouses and in their factories with robots like nuclear meltdowns don't ask for more money more likely to see robots complain about human rights violations yeah those those bomb detonating devices that police use jobs from obviously living breathing souls good morning hamilton and our host is chris Smith. he's the director of the center for theoretical neuroscience at the university of waterloo in the research chair robot i would be extremely surprised if they could get something humanity as you know has had a decades long actually infatuation with the market robots. right now. How do you think that's about seventy-five thousand dollars? Uh, um, and it's much that's smaller. That's an excellent question. I, and so on. You know, so initially, the very first robots that showed up on film and so on were as dangerous four to five creatures. And where that are, is really aside from the fact that it's a little bit surprising when you see things like days. Optimus show up that can barely walk. Well, you know, lots of people have uh, them in their houses. The Terminator carry that idea on Roomba and is up around. I think we're just sort of evolving to the point where we realize that there it's going to be very difficult to make other practical scenarios. In fact, imagine it would be. But we nevertheless, sort of think of being driving cars as getting that. there. But there are, you know, many obviously don't sort of have letters where scientists sign and, and say, uh, you know, you're yeah, for the most part, you really do see the, them still uh, technology that I developed or used for military purposes. I guess the other big place is, of course, um, things like space exploration. But I think the really practical robots we have right now are, you know, anything but there are things like nuclear meltdowns. You're much more likely to see robots. So Optimus is not bringing us one step closer to detonating devices that police world domination obviously would be in that category. Not really. Good morning, Hamilton, and our host is Chris Smith. These, yeah, what's with, uh, I think there's three Tesla employees carrying Waterloo a next-generation optimist, I guess a superior optimist, neuroscience. Uh, because it couldn't Humanity, walk. as you know, has exactly. had a decades-long yes, so infatuation with robots. Just, you know, How do you think that's evolved over the years? Was what they called a uh, um, research that's platform. That's an excellent question. And, and the advanced you know, one initially, was really the very like first robots that showed up on film and so on were dangerous creatures, and that has really stuck around, which is a little bit surprising when you there's advances there, but like I said, we have no idea what they are, and there doesn't seem to be anything special. Of course, the Terminator carried that idea on. And so on. And very interesting I think we're stuff. Just sort of Chris, thanks for your insight. In this. That they're my pleasure. It's going to be very Chris difficult. Smith is the director of the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience at the University of Waterloo and the Canada Research Chair you know, in Theoretical sort of letters Neuroscience. Scientists sign you got to say, Google you know, you, I'm not going to Tesla Optimus uh, technology robot. That I There's also a story globalnews.ca in which it's featured. But I think the really practical robots we have right now are It's in the embarrassing category. I mean, here's a company. Here's a multi-billionaire bringing us one step closer to product or this prototype world domination. And it's not even not really. By robotic <laughs> standards, itself one step closer to the edge of the stage. I, I don't know whether the yeah. What's the with uh, the I think there's one three Tesla employees out there to say, hey, look at the new a next shiny generation toy we're making, I guess or a superior optimist, uh, oh, because it couldn't do that is for sure. Exactly. Yes. The, so the first one they showed was just you know kind of a metal husk that was what they called a uh, research platform, and then the advanced one was really like a on a pogo stick that. You know, it could, they could roll around the stage and it just kind of swung its arms and legs around. <laughs> so presumably there's advances there. But like I said, we have no idea what they are. And there doesn't seem to be anything special, unlike Elon's other companies. Very interesting stuff. Chris, thanks for your insight into this. My pleasure. Chris Eliasmith is the director of the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience at the University of Waterloo and the Canada Research Chair in Theoretical Neuroscience. Y y you got to Google Tesla Optimus robot. There's also a story, globalnews.ca, in which it's featured.
to me, it's it's in the embarrassing category. I mean, here's a company, uh, here's a multi-billionaire who's launching this product or this prototype, and it's not even, by robotic standards, fully functional. I, I don't know whether they're putting the cart before the horse or just wanted to get this thing out there to say, hey, look at the new shiny toy we're making or whatnot, but... Wow, they got some work to do, that is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.